All right, well, hello, Grace Family Church. My name is Hal Merrim, the campus pastor at the Temple Terrace Campus. I'd like to welcome you, all of you here today, all of you that are watching online, and of course, at all of our seven campuses. For example, you guys here, our Lutz Campus, give it up for yourselves. Yeah. Our Carrollwood Campus, our South Tampa Campus, our Clearwater Campus, which is meeting weekly now. Yeah, our Ebor Campus, our Lando Lakes Campus, and of course, my home campus, the Temple Terrace Campus. And so we're in our second week of our, of our series called Jonah. And in this series, one of the things that we have challenged you all to do is to read along with us. We're literally covering a chapter every single week. It's a four-week series. We're covering four chapters. And the reason is this, is that while you may get some commentary here on the weekend, we know this. When you open up the Bible and you read God's Word, the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what God is trying to show you. And so read it for yourself because this is a book about our lives. This is a book about so much of what we go through and how Jonah responded. I mean, we see it in the first week. We see Jonah start off, God speaks to Jonah. God speaks to us. Jonah does the opposite of what God wants him to do, just like we do many times. And he goes down to the port of Joppa and decides that he is going to go in the opposite direction of where God is sending him. And we said this last week, when you're running away from God, there will always be a boat to take you. There will always be a boat to take you away. And so they head out on the boat. God sends a storm. It is so crazy. The sailors start freaking out. They start praying to all of their gods. And on top of it, they throw all their cargo overboard. They throw all their prophets overboard. And they go to Jonah and they're going, Jonah, what is happening? Jonah says, this is my fault. You need to throw me overboard. Because apparently Jonah can't jump himself. But the moment they throw Jonah overboard, what happens? The storm calms. It calms. Why? Because when we surrender to God, it's when he calms the storm. Surrender people always find themselves in the presence of God. And then we ended last week where we're going to pick up this week in Jonah 1.17. It says this, now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Once again, we talked about this last week. Can God do this? Absolutely. We can't put limits on a limitless God. The God created the heaven and the earth can create a fish to swallow Jonah. But here's what I want you guys to understand. This story is not about the fish. It's not. The story is this is not the biggest miracle that's going to happen. Next week is when the big miracle happens. So when you look at the fish, just think of it as a godly version of Uber. God just calls up and he goes, hey, I need somebody out here. And the whale goes, I've got him. I'll pick him up. Picks him up. But I get the question, like, all right, how, how did Jonah stay alive in the fish? And there's, there's three different thoughts on this. The, the first one is kind of the Pinocchio theory, where the, the fish is so massive that when it swallows him, he's kind of on this raft or on this thing inside this air pocket. And he just kind of stays alive while he's in this air pocket inside of the fish. And that is actually the least likely possibility when we look at the chapter. The second uh, one that we see is this, is that some people believe this, because Jesus said just in the same way that Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the earth and so people think well in the same way Jesus died maybe Jonah did maybe Jonah died inside of the fish but then God brought him back to life when he was spit up on dry land the problem with that theory is that when you see in chapter 2 which is what we're going to go through it sounds very different than that we actually see Jonah cry out while he is in the belly of the fish and so many people believe this is that there was a fish that was big enough to swallow Jonah it wasn't there's was an air pocket or anything like that God just sustained him God just sustained him. He just kept him alive in this moment. The question I get is this, is why did, why did God choose that? Why did he choose a fish? 
Why didn't God just send a wind that would send the boat back to where he was supposed to go? Or when Jonah was thrown overboard, God sent another boat. Why did he have to go through the fish? Why did he have to spend three days and three nights in utter darkness wondering if he was going to die? I think the reason God allowed him to go through the fish was because God wanted him to sit in the consequences of his actions. And here's why I say this, because I think sometimes... Many times, God delivers us from a situation, but he doesn't deliver us from our consequences. God delivers us from the situation, but we still have to walk through a very tough time as we decide whether or not do I want to still follow after God or I don't. And as God walks us through our, conf- our consequences, it's actually the time where he teaches us the most. Let me say it this way. If God delivers us but never disciples us, we learn nothing. If God will just deliver us from both our problem and all of our consequences, would we walk with him? Would we talk with him on a regular basis or would we just use him as the genie to get out of our problems? So hear me, church, on this. When we walk away from God, like I said last week, there's always a price to pay when we decide to go away from God. Many times that price is the consequences of our, of our actions. And we're going to go through tough times. The problem comes in many times is when people use phrases that God never said as as truth. How about this one? God will never allow you to go through more than you can handle. Here's the problem with that. God never said that. In fact, it actually comes from a verse that has nothing to do with that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, this says, the temptations in your life are no different than what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand, meaning this, he will always provide a way out. So what does God say? He says, you will never have more temptation than you can stand. What did God not say? I will never give you more than you can handle. And here's why. God always gives us more than we can handle. Because his goal is for us to lean into him. See, Jonah in this moment has no choice but to lean into God. He has no choice than to get next to God because he is at the end of himself. See, that's why it's so important as Christians for us to make sure that we're putting our faith in our Savior and not our circumstances. Believing that our Savior tells us what is real, not our circumstances. So Jonah is caught in the belly of this fish, and we see him cry out to God in Jonah 2, starting in chapter 1. It says this. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me, and I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. He is being gut-level honest right here. He's going, I am at the bottom right now. He says, then I said, oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. Many people believe Jonah thought that he may have already been dead. And this was hell, this utter darkness. Then it says, as my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Jonah was in the darkest point of his life. And in that moment, he goes, all right, I've got to turn to God. I I think for a moment, we've got to think about what it was like to be in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. 
I mean, what, what, what could have that been like? I mean, some of you are germaphobes. You're afraid of touching a fish. Jonah was in the fish. Like if you're claustrophobic, even reading that verse probably has you a little bit. I mean, he's inside the fish. There's seaweed wrapped around his head. And on top of it, we talked about this last week. Jonah grew up in a desert. Do you think he had a swim team? My guess is Jonah can't swim. So he's thinking, all right, once he figures out he's in a fish, do I go out of the fish? If I get out of the fish, what am I gonna do? I don't know which way is up. I don't know where I'm at. I'm just gonna be in the middle of the ocean. And on top of that, I can't swim. Jonah in this moment is crying out because he has no other choice. He has no other choice. He has absolutely lost all control in his life and he's freaking out and so he chooses to pray. See, I think we've all been there, right? We've all had seasons where we've felt like we've lost control. Seasons where we felt like well, we, we can't do anything right or even moments where crisis just sets in. You know, I, I've had those moments, but just in all honesty, the moment that I felt the most out of control is a moment that I'm gonna ask the ladies in the room to forgive me for because it's not a moment I should make about me. It was the moment my wife gave birth to my son. I know it's not about me. But I remember going that day and we went in and we were confident in what was going to happen. We had our birth plan typed up, double space, beautiful. This is what's gonna happen. And I handed it to the nurse. I was like, this is what's gonna happen. She said, okay. I was like, we're not, we're not gonna use any, any uh, painkillers. We're just gonna do this. It's funny that I'm saying we're gonna do this. Um, <laughs> all natural, all this. And I'm excited about it because I'm, I'm not going through it. And then 30 hours into it, she's already, her, her water is broken. She's not dilating. They're like, we're going to have to do a C-section. And our entire plan went out the window. I remember them coming to get her and they're like, we're taking her off. I'm like, don't I go with her? They're like, you will, but not yet. I'm like, no, I want to I follow her. I want to make sure I'm with her. And they're like, no, you'll come later. And so I had to, of course, put on the scrubs and the mask and all those things. And I remember walking into the room and seeing my wife there and just, just looking uncomfortable. And she was shaking. I'm like, why is she shaking? And the anesthesiologist was like, well, it's because of what we're giving her. I'm like, do we have to give her that? He's like, yes. <laughs> I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden I look over and I see in one of the tubes, there's this air bubble going through it. And I'm like, oh no. And I go to grab the tube and the anesthesiologist literally slaps my hand down. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, she's going to die. He goes, stop watching TV. Because <laughs> that's not the way it works. I'm like, okay. And so I'm talking to my wife and we're sitting there. You know, you're waiting for that one moment when the baby cries, right? And finally that moment happened and the baby cries and we're all excited and this is happening. We see the baby. Then they're like, dad, here, you're gonna go with the baby into the other room. I'm like, what? no. She, she knows this stuff. She's the mom. I, I, they call it maternal instinct. I, I don't have that. They're like, no, no, dad, you need to go. And Chrissy's like, you need to go with her. And so I go off and I go into this other room with this, this baby and babies don't look like they do in the movies. They're, they're much skinnier <laughs> and there's stuff all over them. And I'm going, all right, what's going on? And the nurse is cleaning her off and they're, they're starting to measure him and weigh him. And I'm looking and he's just screaming this entire time. And I'm going, okay, where's my wife? Why isn't she here yet? What's going on right now? And I start to freak out a little bit. I'm going, I can't do this. What if, what if she's not okay? What if she's, she died? Oh my gosh, if she died, I can't do this. I don't, I don't have the ability to do this. I don't produce milk. Like we, I, every dog I've ever had, we've given back. Like I can't do this on my own. And in the middle of the crisis, I am freaking out. And here's what's so interesting. Have you ever noticed in the middle of the crisis it becomes all about us? 
I'm not even the one in danger. I would love to think, I would love to say that at the beginning of it, I prayed. But it was down the road, I'm like, you know what? I should probably pray. So I start praying and God starts to bring a little bit of peace and then my wife comes in the room and I pick up my son, I go, this is for you. (laughs) We did it. The problem so many times is we see prayer as a last resort instead of a first response. We don't start there. And if we would start there, God would be in the situation with us from the beginning. See, it's actually more important for God to be with us in the crisis than for him not to be with us in the resolution. It's more important to have God with us. But we've got to understand what prayer is so that we do it the right way. Or we understand how we do it. Because I think so many times we have the wrong idea of prayer. I mean, when I started praying, I think I thought was this. I thought God was, was I was just giving him my to-do list. Like I was giving God his job description. Almost like he was like a concierge on a cruise line. You know, the people that you talk to, you like, I want to eat here and I want to do this. Well, I'm going, hey, God, I want to get married at this point. I want to have this many kids. I want this to happen in my job. I want this raise to happen. And I give it to God. And what happens? Nothing. And we go back to God and we're like, God, I understand you work in mysterious ways, but I don't see anything happening. Then we go back to God another six months later and you're like, God, sorry, you're kind of bad at your job. Because we, for some reason, thought God's job was to do what we said. See, prayer doesn't change God's heart, it changes ours. See, one of the great things about prayers is as we pray, the more we pray, God changes our heart, God changes our mind. And in this this instance with Jonah, prayer is incredibly distance closing. Like, he has been running away from God, but in a moment, he is in the presence of God. Here's the other thing prayer is great at. For those of you that are verbal processors, God is the best listener. He absolutely is. It may not be your spouse, but gosh, God will listen. And he won't look off or unpause the TV while you're talking. God will listen to you. And here's what's so great about verbal processing with God is he starts to change your heart. He starts to show you what he wants to do in your life. And so what Jonah is doing in this moment, he's sharing the prayer. He's going, this is what's going on in my life. And he is at the end of his road. So what Jonah is doing is what he can only do. He's going, God, I can't handle this situation anymore. I can't handle this burden. So I'm going to give it to you. See, one of the greatest things that prayer is, it's transferring our burdens to God. It's transferring our burdens to God. Because like I said before, God always gives you more than you can handle. So the only way that we can truly do what God's called us to do is to give him those things. So when you talk to God, are you transferring your burden? Are you giving him the circumstance? Are you giving him the problem? I heard a pastor say it this way before. If you aren't less stressed when you're done praying, you're not praying, you're just complaining. I'm a good complainer. You know what complaining is? It's telling God everything that's wrong, but going, I still want to run it myself. God, this is wrong. This isn't going the right way. You need to help this, but I'm, I'm going to do it my way still. See, when we give our burdens over to God, is the moment he comes in and he helps us and we can lean on him. And we're not giving our burdens to a God that doesn't understand us. We're giving our burdens to a God that absolutely does. Because his son, Jesus, went through the same things we do. 
I mean, Jesus, in his time where he needed his friends the most, they left. Jesus, at one point, his parents actually thought he was crazy. Jesus was so stressed at one moment that he literally cried tears of blood. He sweat tears of blood. So when we tell our, our, our stuff to God, when we unload our burdens and our problems, it's a God that absolutely understands us in that moment. See, what we, what we have to do is we have to give God our situation. We give God our burden. And that's exactly what Jonah does right here. And then what Jonah does is in verses 8 and 9 is he gets to the root of the problem. In Jonah 8 and 9, it starts off like this. It says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on God's mercies. That is the root of the problem. Is not false gods, but idols. Jonah has some idols in his life. It says, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. What is he doing in this moment? He's worshiping God. Has he been freed yet? No, he hasn't. But he's worshiping God in the wait. See, the problem that happens so many times when we follow after God is God gets us out of the situation, he starts to bless us, and then we start worshiping the blessing instead of the one that blessed us. We stop worshiping what was created instead of our creator. Because when we talk about idols, you're like, how? I've never built a, a large gold statue and worshiped it. No, nowadays, here's what idolatry is. Idolatry is the pursuit of something that is good, but is not God. Idolatry is the pursuit of something good, but is not God. It's crazy how easily we can make idols. It's the things that we absolutely love. I absolutely love my wife. She is an awful God. I love my kids. They are awful gods. We love sports team. We love the Bucks. They got Brady back. That's great. He's an awful God. I love my job. I love my ministry. I love what I get to do. But if I make that a God, it is an awful God. See, I think the problem that happens so many times and the reason many of us, we don't see the blessings that God has us for in our lives is because we're not seeking after God. We're seeking after what he can give us. And God doesn't exist to give us our next idol. God's not in the business of replacing himself. God's not looking for you to make, to make what he made and put it in front of him. See, Jonah has two idols in this situation. His two idols, one is race. We see him say, and we'll see this more in chapters three and four, him say, I don't want you to save those people. Anytime you say, I don't want God to save those people, we've lost the heart of God. And the second idol he has is this, it's comfort. God, I want to live in my city with my people where they love me. Here's what's interesting about Jonah. It is normally whenever the Israelites, whenever God's people were going away from God, God would send a prophet. They would, the prophet would tell them everything they're doing wrong. The people wouldn't like it, so they'd either drive him away or kill him. In this moment, the Israelites are running away from God. Jonah's the prophet, yet for some reason, everybody likes him. Somebody's not telling the truth. Somebody's choosing, I would rather be liked than be truthful. Jonah has an idol that is comfort. Comfort is not bad. It just makes a crappy God. And here's why we need to understand what our idol is, because our idol is the root of our sin. Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's not about just stopping sinning. What we need to do is we need to get to the root of why we're sinning and why we're doing it. Because if we don't take out the root, it will just spread. It's kind, of, it's kind of like this. I feel like every kid has this story. 
I, I, I hated the most weeding when I was a kid. Literally, it's the worst chore ever. That's why my son does it now. It's character building. And we would, in South Florida, we, we would have our, our, our gardens, and in it, they, they would have these dollar weeds. And dollar weeds are the worst weed. Because uh, in order to get them out, you have to pull them out one by one. They're little weeds. You have to pull them out one by one. And when you pull them out, they smell like garbage. Literally, it's their defense mechanism. And so I'm out in my backyard and I'm pulling these out one by one. And I go, there's gotta be a better way. So I go to the shed, I get an iron rank. I push back the, uh, all the mulch. And then I proceed to kind of work the weeds into the ground. You know, chop them off, take off the heads, work them into the ground, and then I take the mulch and I put it back over it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm brilliant. I need to tell other kids about this. And then a week later, my dad comes and talks to me. He says, hey, did you, did, you do the, did you weed the garden bed last week? I'm like, yeah, I did. He goes, are you sure? I'm like, crap. When he asks a follow-up question, it's never good. <laughs> He's like, did you pull the weeds out or did you rake them in? I'm like, gosh. He was watching. And then we go out and what happens? The weeds were where they were and they also spread. See, hear me on this. If we don't get to the root, if we don't understand what our idol is, we will never stop sinning. It'll just be a different sin. And so the way that we deal with our idols is very, very simple. It's worship. See, if idolatry is our problem, worship is our solution. It's not that we just stop worshiping that idol. We change our worship. We are meant to worship. God made us to worship. We will always worship something. So we've got to change our worship from whatever it is, whether it's our comfort or our job or our spouse, and we got to turn it to God. How do you change your worship? Three things. Your words, your works, and your wallet. Our words, it's what comes out of our mouth. It's not just singing. It's what are we talking about? Are we praying to God? Are we spending time in community talking about God? It's our works. Do we follow after God? Am I serving God? We are never more like Jesus than when we serve. And then our wallet. Like how we just had a financial series. I understand. Do you know Jesus talked more about finances than he did about heaven or hell? Why? Because he knew that's where our hearts were. And it's amazing how much your heart changes when you start to fund God's ministry. It's amazing how much he turns you to him. So we change our worship, just like Jonah did. In the belly of the whale, he goes, I'm not gonna worship me, I'm not gonna worship my comfort, God, I'm going to worship you. And then in verse 10, it ends with this. It says, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out on the beach. It's probably better to throw up than to be thrown up. What's interesting to me is like God ordered the fish to pick Jonah up. He picked him up. God ordered the fish to spit him out. He did it. He's two for two. Like the fish is literally more holy than the prophet at this moment. <laughs> but Jonah in this moment, he's given a second chance. And I, I imagine this, he spit out onto the beach and he's going, thank God. Then he realizes where he is. He's like, oh, God still wants me to do this. God still wants me to go to Nineveh. And he has a choice. He has a choice. In the Jewish faith, one of the holy days is called Yom Kippur. And in Yom Kippur, uh, it's the Day of Atonement. 
about two-thirds of the day, through, way through the day, uh, they have this, this service where the priest will come up and he'll read Jonah 1 through 4, literally from beginning to end. And at the end of it, the priest will get everybody to say this. He'll say, repeat after me, and they'll, they'll all say this, we are Jonah. So that's what I want us to do. On the count of three, we're all going to say, we are Jonah, okay? One, two, three. We are Jonah. We are. We're Jonah, aren't we? God spoke to Jonah, God speaks to us. Jonah ran from God, we run from God. Jonah ended up in a storm, we end up in storms. Jonah was in a dark place, we've been in dark places. But God didn't give up on Jonah and God doesn't give up on us. God didn't condemn Jonah and God doesn't condemn us. God didn't remove his love from Jonah and God doesn't remove his love from us. And God still has a mission for Jonah and God still has a mission for us. Hear me, church, in this. If we don't remember who our God is, we won't turn to him when times are tough. We won't turn to him when we sin. In fact, what we will do is this, is we have an enemy that loves to tell you that when you sin, God is going to only condemn you. God is only going to make you feel guilt and shame instead of the love, the joy, and the peace and the patience that he has for us. See, we look at this story and we remember this because we must remember who God is. And the more we see who God is, the less time we will spend away from him. Because the more we realize he is the good, good father. Not a representation of our earthly father, but a perfect father. And so we remember that. And actually what's incredible is God sends us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has many jobs. And one of them we see in John 14, 26, he says, but when the father says the advocate is my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you, underline remind you of everything I have told you. This is why we spend time with God every day. This is why we spend time in his word. This is why we spend time in prayer. So we can be reminded of who God is. That he loves us. He has a plan for our lives. And he's always there for us. See, the Holy Spirit will show us that, but here, here's what the Holy Spirit also does. The Holy Spirit also convicts our heart. The Holy Spirit convicts our heart. And I, I believe this, there are many of you in this room right now Many of you that may be on another campus or online right now, that God is, the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart. He's going, hey, you know you can't do this life on your own anymore. You know you need a God that can free you from the situation that you're in. You know you need a God that you can take the burdens that you've been carrying for far too long off your shoulders and put them on him. You need that God. God says, I'll come into your life, and it's simple. All you have to do is admit that you've sinned. Just believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and you commit your life to him. And God says, I will come into your life and be what only I can be. So today, if you want to start that relationship with God, if you want to take that first step forward, I'm going to say a prayer out loud right now that you can say quietly right where you're at. If we could, if we could all bow our heads and close our eyes. If you want to start that relationship with God, I'm going to say a prayer out loud that you can say silently right where you're at right now. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. I believe in your son, Jesus, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. God, I'm committing my life to you. 
God, I'm handing you my burdens. God, I'm choosing to worship you alone. God, thank you for loving me first. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, that is the greatest decision you would ever make. And we would love, love to help you with some next steps. And the easiest way of doing, letting us know that you prayed that prayer is just text YES to 81313. Just text YES to 81313 and we will follow up with you. But we're not done right now. Like I said, one of the biggest things we need to do as Christians is remember who God is and what he's done for us. And remember who his son is and what he's done for us. And one of the ways that God has us do that is through celebrating and communion. It's remembering who Jesus is and the sacrifice that was made. So right now I'm gonna ask the campus pastors at every campus to come up and lead your congregation in celebration of communion.